I want to talk about a subject this morning that's extremely important to every child of God. I want to talk about the power of faith. But from the narrative that is before us, I want to talk about the kind of faith that can change your life. There's a difference between little faith and great faith. And what do we do if we have little faith and we want to have great faith? What do we do? We're going to talk about these things in detail in just a few minutes as we go through. But as a text, as an introductory text, in Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing would be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. You know, in these passages, Jesus says the most incredible thing about faith. He says, first of all, you got to have faith as a mustard seed. And by the way, we'll talk about what all this means. But Jesus said, if you could have the faith of a mustard seed, you can do the following. You could actually move mountains and nothing would be impossible for you. Now, obviously, these are, these are statements that must be clarified and qualified, and we will do so in just a little bit. But understand, Jesus says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can move mountains, and nothing would be impossible for you. Let me say these introductory remarks, though, about faith. Faith accomplishes great things in life, as evidenced throughout the pages of divine inspiration. For example, it was the faith in God's power that caused Caleb to look to the land of Canaan with its giants and say, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. That was faith in God's power. It was faith in God's care that enabled Job to say in the very midst of personal disaster, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. It was faith in God's protection that enabled Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stand on the edge of the fiery furnace and say, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. It was faith in God's word that enabled Daniel to survive the lion's den, that enabled Abel to offer a better sacrifice than Cain, that caused Enoch to be translated to heaven without death, that allowed Noah to build a great ark and preach righteousness and many, many others. And we read about all of those great heroes of faith. Terry's been preaching on those things. Great heroes of faith that are cataloged in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. But as the writer of Hebrews leads into the great opening of the 12th chapter, he said, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. All of these very encouraging, powerful truths found in God's word. What about the setting, though, that is before us? You know, I love the setting that happened just prior to the event that Jesus speaks of here. 
and that we read about in the Gospels. You remember that right before this, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he was there with three of his disciples. He was there with Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured and his face did shine like the sun. Many of these things I have said in the past and you've heard me say them, but these are incredibly encouraging things. First of all, we understand this, that when two visitors showed up there that day, it was Moses and Elijah. Now, why were they there? I think they were there for two reasons. Number one, to show that Jesus Christ in the fact that he was transfigured, was greater than Moses and Elijah. That's number one. And number two, Moses represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. So, Jesus being transfigured in the face of Peter, James, and John, it was proof that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Jesus said, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, we know what happens. We know that Peter gets very impulsive, as Peter often did. And Peter said, let's build three tabernacles. One naturally for you, Jesus, but let's build one for Moses. Let's build one for Elijah. And then the booming voice from heaven. I don't know what it sounded like, but I know one thing. It scared Peter, James, and John out of their mind. The Bible says they fell down on their faces and the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. When they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone and it was just Jesus. But one final thing about encouraging, uh, some encouraging things about this. You've heard me say this before. Have you ever stopped to consider the very fact that Peter, James, and John had never met Moses in life? And they never met Elijah in life. And yet they knew exactly who they were. I'm sure Moses wasn't wearing a name tag that says, Hello, I'm Moses. Or Elijah doing the same. I think there's a beautiful picture here. And please be encouraged by this. We're talking about men that had died hundreds of years before this event. And Peter, James, and John had never seen them in life. And they knew exactly who they were. I think there's a wonderful encouragement, encouraging picture that we're going to know each other in heaven. I think we're going to know as we were known, and I think we're going to be able one day to know exactly who we were. I find great encouragement by that, that we're going to know each other in heaven. So all of a sudden, Jesus comes down with Peter, James, and John, and it leads us back to verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came kneeling to him. Now, the other gospel writers tell us a little bit more about the crowd. In fact, Mark's account says that the nine other disciples that did not go to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, they were there. We also find that the scribes were there. And incidentally, you might remember in our series on the last week in the life of Jesus, we made the statement and we proved that oftentimes the scribes were among the people that were opposed to Jesus. They were part of the religious leaders they were part of that sect or that division that was against Jesus. They're there too. And they're about to witness something in the presence of all. And our story begins. The great multitude is present. And here comes a man. And the Bible says he came to him and he kneeled to him. I don't know all that this man knew about Jesus. I really don't. 
But clearly, he knew that Jesus was a man of authority. In fact, he spoke things that no man had ever spoke. In the great sermon on the mount, it says that very thing. He spoke with authority, and he spoke in such a way no man had spoke like that. Nobody could preach like Jesus. But he did other things too. He healed their sick. He caused blind eyes to see. He fed the hungry. He did many things by way of miracles when he walked on the face of the earth. And the Bible says that many other things truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written that you might believe. He did many wonderful things. So this man obviously knew there was something special about Jesus. And he comes and he kneels down to him and notice what happens. In verse 15, he said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Now, this word Lord doesn't mean Lord and Savior. This word Lord means it's the word didaskalos. It's a term of respect, and it's translated in three different English words. It's translated as master, it's translated as teacher, and it's translated as Lord. So, this man was not necessarily calling him Lord and Savior, but when he said Lord, he was giving him a term of respect. And he said this, have mercy on my son. You know, the word actually means, the Greek word there, aleo, actually means to show compassion for. And you know, sometimes you can show compassion for someone, and this word can be used in the tense or in the way of showing compassion over a period of time. Kind of an ongoing thing. You know, I might do that in my life. I might show compassion towards someone a little at a time or progressively or ongoing. But that's not this word in this passage. Though the, the tense of this word in this passage means an instantaneous, once and for all, demonstration of compassion healing his son. He said, have mercy on my son. Why is that? He's an epileptic. The New King James says epileptic. You know what's interesting about this word? It actually comes from a word that means this, moonstruck. You ever stop to consider about that, what people thought back in those days? We know so many things about medicine today. We know about epilepsy. We know about that stuff. What about back then? They didn't have any idea about all the things that we know about medically, okay? So if somebody had a nervous disorder or they had a seizure condition or if they were what we would consider today an epileptic, you know what they said? Oh, he's moonstruck, because that was a pagan approach. You know what they believed? They believed that people re reacted like that and behaved like that because they were influenced negatively by the moon. He said the moon struck. And by the way, there's an English word for that too. And it's in the King James. And it means lunatic. And it's in the King James. He's a lunatic. He's moonstruck. And this man is pouring his heart out to Jesus in great desperation. He's a lunatic. And it's not a mild case, by the way. It's very serious. He's afflicted greatly. And then he says this. Oftentimes he suffers severely and he falls into the fire and into the water. Now, back then they had open pools of water. And they also had open flames that burned all the time. So, here's this young man. 
And, he, and, and his father is pouring his heart out to Jesus. And he said, here's the problem. He's got this terrible condition. He suffers severely. It's not a mild case. And oftentimes when he goes into these fits, he falls into the fire, oftentimes, almost burning to death or into the water, almost drowning to death. The other gospel writers tell us more. Mark's account says he was demon-possessed. Luke's account said this, that when the demon would overtake this young man, he would literally pick him up and slam him to the ground and thrash his body. Luke's account says that when that happened, he would be foaming at the mouth. Now you can just imagine how pitiful this sight was. You got this poor young man, demon possessed, got all this stuff, but there's more. Mark's account says he was deaf, he could not hear. It also says he was dumb and that he could not speak. This poor fellow had it bad. Had all these terrible things. And no doubt his father with tears streaming down his face comes to the father. Jesus asks in Mark chapter 9 verse 21, he asks, how long has he been like this? And he said since his childhood. I don't know how old this young man was. But since his childhood, he had these terrible things. You know what I thought about? I thought about what you would do if there was something wrong with one of your kids. If something happens to one of your kids and there's, no, there's nothing you can do, how helpless that is, that's really true. If, if there's something wrong with one of your kids and there's something you can do about it, then, then you focus on the solution and you go take care of the solution. And it might be a doctor that you might see. It might be medicine that they would take. But the whole idea is you would just exhaust what you would be able to do in order to solve the problem. What if you were like this man and there was nothing you can do? Nothing at all. You've exhausted everything. In fact, I'm going to tell you how far he had exhausted it. In verse 16 he said, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not Cure him. Now, this Greek word therapeuo is the word that is always used in the New Testament when somebody is being healed of something. And by the way, that's where we get the word therapy or therapeutic. Okay? It's always the word that describes a healing. So what is he saying? He said, I tried to do everything I needed to do. I've exhausted everything. I even brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Now, you know, it doesn't really make sense. Let's go back. Let's go back. Because it doesn't make sense that they were not able to cure this young man. Let me show you in Matthew chapter 10. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. So notice, they were given the power to do it. They had the power in Matthew 10 and verse 1, but there's more. In verses 7 and 8, they were given the commission to do this. Watch. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So, it doesn't square well. It doesn't make any sense. They couldn't do it. The man said, I took him to your disciples. They couldn't do it. Doesn't make sense. Jesus gave him the power and he gave him the commission to do it. One more thing. You know, they already had been doing it. 
in Mark's account in Mark chapter 6 and verse 13. And, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. We're going to notice what was different, though, a little bit later on. We're going to notice what they were lacking this particular time. But let's just move on. So all of this is being said. They could not utilize the power. He said, I brought him to your disciples. They could not cure him. And notice what Jesus says next. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? And then he said, bring him here to me. Now, first of all, I got to say that the, 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 the phraseology there of faithless and perverse generation obviously is a general term, okay, because he says generation. But specifically in the context, he's talking about his disciples. We're getting a view into the heart of Jesus. They couldn't do it. And Jesus said, oh, faithless and perverse generation. And notice, he said, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to say the same things to you over and over and over again? Listen, I know people like that. They just don't get it. And a lot of times people don't get it because they choose not to get it. They really do. I'm going to tell you that happens sometimes. Okay? He said, how long am I going to be with you and tell you the same stuff over and over? Now, we have to notice what perverse means. What does that actually mean? It actually means twisted, crooked, and distorted. And by the way, it's a word used for a craftsman, for example. Maybe he was a sculptor or a carpenter. And when his work was shoddy, there's a number of people here that are in the trades or have experience in the building trades, carpentry trades, painting trades. It was a word that was used to describe somebody that did poor work. When his work was shoddy and was not what it should be, it was called perverse. And it means twisted, crooked, and distorted. That's what he called the faithless generation. And by the way, when we say this in a general standpoint, uh, in a general way or a general sense, we obviously are talking about people that fall into that category of being faithless. In fact, remember this. Even the Father comes to Jesus. Now picture this in your mind's eye. The Father had already exhausted the disciples to no avail, and he comes to Jesus, and one of the gospel accounts said that the Father said this. He said, Lord, I believe, but then he said, help my unbelief. Do you see that? He believed a little, but not enough. And he recognized his faith was not what it should be. So he said, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. All right. And Jesus finally says, bring him here to me. You know, Mark's account says what happened. The demons saw Jesus. Oh, they, were, they knew who Jesus was. The demon knew Jesus. And Jesus comes on the scene. And you know what he does? The devil overtakes this young man. And he begins to convulse. He is slammed to the ground. He's foaming at the mouth. But the devil is not any match for the Lord. He's no match at all. The demon was no match at all. And then he said this in verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was, there's that word again, once and for all, extending mercy once and for all, and therapuo, curing him from that very hour. 
Now I got to tell you, all of that is the narrative behind what we're going to talk about. Just for a few minutes. Just for a few minutes. And if the story ends right there, do you know what we have? We've got a very, very unfortunate circumstance that happened to a young man that ended well. And that's it. But that's not the reason it's in the Bible. The reason that this story is in the Bible is because it's teaching time for Jesus. It's time for Jesus to start preaching. And notice what happens. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? In other words, it doesn't square well. You told us back in Matthew chapter 10 we can do it. You gave us the commission to do it. And by the way, we were already doing it according to Mark 6 and 13, right? What was different? Number one, this was the first time in all of the New Testament that I can find, it was the first time that the disciples had to perform a miracle like this by themselves without Jesus. That's number one. Number two, I don't know how else to put it. I heard a guy say one time, it was a real doozy of a demon. I don't know how else to put it. Because the Bible says this kind does not go out by, except by prayer and fasting. So whatever this thing was, it was pretty powerful. Okay? It's pretty powerful. And they want to know why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we cast out this demon? And notice what Jesus said. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. Now please understand in the original it doesn't say that. In the original it doesn't say because of your unbelief. In the original it says because of your little faith. In other words, Jesus wasn't saying you don't believe at all. He's saying you didn't believe enough. He didn't say you had no faith. He said you had little faith. In fact, in the original, it literally says, because of your little faith. How many times were the disciples indicted for that very thing? Remember in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30, in the great sermon on the mount, Jesus says, now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you, of little faith? In other words, they weren't worried with what they had. They worried about what they didn't have. God said, I'll take care of it. God said, don't worry about it. But they worried about it. And Jesus says, O oh, you of little faith. Remember Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus was on the ship and he's in the hinder parts of the ship and he's asleep on a pillow? And his disciples look out and they see this terrible storm and they're scared out of their mind. And they go looking for Jesus. Remember that song we used to sing, Peace Be Still? Master, the tempest is raging and all of that. And when they came to Jesus in the song and said, Carest thou not that we perish? How canst thou lie asleep? That's what the song said. That's what they did. They went to Jesus and they said, How can you sleep? Aren't you concerned? You know what Jesus said? The Bible says they took him even as he was in the ship. He rose and he said this. He rebuked the wind. He rebuked the sea. And he said, peace be still. And the Bible says there was a great peace and there was a great calm. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. What about the time when Peter was called by Jesus to walk on water? Jesus waited, the disciples go on, it's dark. 
And they're out there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and they look up, and they see Jesus walking on water, and they're scared. They're afraid because they think they see a ghost. And Jesus says, be not afraid, for it is I. And Peter said, if it's really you, bid that I would come out unto thee. And Jesus says, come on. Make no mistake about it. Peter walked on water too for a little bit. He did. Jesus said, and it was by the power of the Lord, Jesus said, come on out. And he does, and he's walking on water. But Peter loses something that sometimes we can lose. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you lose this, you, you will lose your faith. Peter lost his focus. Peter took his eyes off Jesus. He lost his focus on Jesus, and he began to look at all the peripheral issues. He looked at the waves. He looked at the wind. He got scared. And you know what he did? He lost his focus. Therefore, he lost his faith, and the faith was that he could do exactly what the Lord said he could do. That's kind of us sometimes, right? He gets scared to death. He starts to sink. The Lord reaches out, and he grabs him. He saves him, and he says, Oh, you of little faith. Peter, why did you doubt? Why'd you doubt? Do you know that when faith stops, it leads to despair? And despair leads to worry, and worry leads to doubt. Have you ever stopped to consider the progression of that? When you stop believing, it leads to despair, it leads to worry, and you know what happens then? It leads to doubt. And then you start doubting whether or not it's taken care of. Whether the Lord really is in charge of your life in both time and eternity. One man said that faith is the ability to believe and trust God when there are no human resources. That's a fact. And I'm going to tell you something right now. There's a big difference between little faith and great faith. Let me tell you what little faith is. Okay? Give you an example of little faith. Little faith is trusting and believing God because you see what he has already done. For example, I have food on my table. I got faith, Lord provides. I got food in the cupboard. I got faith, Lord provides. I have a job that provides for me. Therefore, I got faith, the Lord provides. I have a house over my head. I have a means of transportation. I have a car. I've got all this. Oh, yes, I believe the Lord provides. Big deal. That's little faith. Great faith is trusting God when you've got nothing in your hand. That's great faith. And sometimes... Faith will make you do this. You have to. Sometimes there's no human resources at all. You don't know what you're going to do. And all you can do is jump into the waiting arms of a father that you cannot see. And you put your life in time and eternity in his hands. That's great faith. There's a story told one time of family late at night. The house caught on fire. The man very hurriedly woke up. He rounded up all of his kids and his wife, and he got them out to the front lawn. And he was doing a little head count. He had a large family. And as he was doing a little head count, he realized that the youngest son was not there. And he was afraid, and he did what any father would do. We would all do this. Run right in the, run right in the flame. 
for the kid. We, we all do that. And you're going to do it. And he goes to do that. And before he gets to the entry of the house, he hears a little sound of a little voice. And he looks up, and it was his son standing on the roof. And his son was unharmed, but he was very afraid. He says, Daddy, I'm so scared. And the man stood under the eave of that roof, and he said, Everything is okay. All you got to do is jump. But the little boy looked down, and all he could see is flames and black smoke. And he said, But Daddy, I'm afraid. And his father said, Son, if you don't jump now, you're going to die. You have to trust me. And the little boy said, but daddy, I'm afraid because I can't see you. The father said, but I can see you. And that's all that matters. And with those words, the little boy jumped into the waiting arms of a father he couldn't see. That's faith. That's great faith. Then Jesus is going to do a little preaching. I love this. He's going to do a little preaching. He says, because of your little faith. Now, what does he mean? He said, if you had the faith of a mustard seed. What does that actually mean? Now, I'm going to tell you what I used to think years ago that this meant. Because the mustard seed is very small. That Jesus was just saying, you don't have any faith, so if you just had a little, it can go a long way. Is that true? Nope, that's not true. I was wrong. That's not what that means. Faith of a mustard seed. All we got to do is go back and look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 13. He gives the explanation. And another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in the field, which is indeed the least of all seeds, when it's grown, it is greater than all the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. That's the principle of the mustard seed. Not that it's small. It's that it starts off very small, but it grows to greatness. Do you know what he was telling those disciples? He said, here's your problem with your faith. It didn't grow. It died small. That's what he said. It died small. Their faith died small. They bailed out. Jesus said this, if you could only have faith of a mustard seed, you could also move mountains, he said. And by the way, I got to tell you, when you talk about moving mountains, you know, it's very interesting about that. Um, this does not mean literal mountains. I got to tell you one time when I was having chemo one day, a fella said to me, he said, uh, he was over there with his wife, and she had stage four cancer, and it, she was very sick. I don't know what happened to her after that. But she was having chemo, and I was having chemo, and when you're all having chemo, you're all in the club and encouraging one another. And the man yells across to me, and he says, hey, son, and that doesn't bother me. I was raised like that. Yes, sir. He said, son, do you believe in God? I said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. I kind of smiled. He said, well, if you have enough faith God will move even literal mountains. And he took this passage of scripture out of context. God could actually move literal mountains. Now, God can do anything he wants to do, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what is actually stated here. 
He said, you can do that and God will perform a miracle and you can be healed of your cancer. And I said, sir, with all due respect, I said, do you believe that? He said, yes, I do. And I said, sir, if you believe that, why are you here? And that's when I said, I'm going to pray like it all depends on God. I'm going to fight like it all depends on me. And I'm going to the doctor for the drugs. I'm going to the doctor for the medicine. God uses means. This is not literal. Do you know what this means? Do you know what move mountains actually means? It is a Jewish colloquial phrase that literally means, it means, uh, it means mountains of difficulty. Now, this was exclusive to the age of miracles, but you know what? It even applies today too. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, in other words, that grows to greatness, you can do things like that too. You can move mountains of difficulty in your life also. And nothing would be impossible for you. Clarify that thought in just a minute. But notice what he says. He said, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So please understand, the antidote for little faith is prayer. So if you're having a hard time and you're struggling with your faith, talk to God. You still don't feel a little bit better? Talk to him again. You're still kind of coming around. You're still talk to him again and pray about that and tell God about it and open your heart up to God and say, I am struggling in my faith. Help my faith. Pray about that. The antidote for little weak faith is prayer. You know what else he says? He says prayer and fasting. So however this kind was, whatever this demon was, Jesus said he ain't going out unless it's by prayer and fasting. Okay. One little quick thing about fasting. You heard my little two-part series on fasting. Do you remember in the Old Testament what they were required to do when God did require fasting in a particular day? One of the reasons for fasting was to afflict the soul. Now, what does that mean, afflict the soul? Afflicting the soul meant humbling the soul. It is a matter of humility. So what's he saying? If you're struggling with your little faith, watch this. All you got to do, you have to humble yourself and you have to pray about it. And keep doing that. Keep doing that. Now, what kind of prayer, by the way, what kind of prayer? I think persistent prayer, don't you? I've been saying this for eight years. I've been, I've been healthy from cancer for eight years. And I say it all the time. I don't care. I'm going to say it again. I'm so thankful for the people that prayed for me. Over and over and over and over and over again. Is that a vain repetition? No. That's persistent prayer. There's a difference between a vain repetition and a persistent prayer. A vain repetition is just the babbling on of words with no meaning. You just say words, you repeat words over and over and over and over and over. There's no meaning there. That's not, that is a vain repetition, okay? That's not persistent prayer. Jesus did talk about persistent prayer when he gave the parable of the friend at midnight. He said, let me illustrate prayer like this to you. It's midnight and you're in bed. Or this, this guy, your neighbor's in bed, your friend's in bed, and the kids are in bed. And then all of a sudden, you go over there and you knock on the door and say, Hey, I got somebody just stopped in. Can I have three loaves of bread? Your friend, who may even be your buddy, you might even be really close, he's going to say, No, get lost. We're in bed now. It's too late. Go away. Don't bother me with this. 
Jesus said that that friend will end up giving you the bread not because of your friendship, but because of your persistence. We pray persistently. Want to get rid of little faith? Want to strengthen your faith? You want great faith? Prayer. And you know what? If you're really having a hard time, fast. Fast. It humbles the spirit. It humbles the soul. So, what have we learned today about faith? We learned that a growing faith will get you through mountains of difficulty. And I got to tell you something, folks. Not one passage in, this, in, in the Bible that I can read about says that if you become a Christian, your life is easy. But what we do know about faith is this, that a growing faith will get us through mountains of difficulty. Great faith is knowing that God is still there. He's still there, even if the answer is no. Great faith is trusting that if God won't deliver you from it, he'll get you through it. That's great faith. In other words, a growing faith will change your life. It will. It'll change your life. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.